You're listening to CFRC 101.9 FM, an Apple a Day Public Health Inquiry Podcast, or PHIP for short. The aim of this podcast is to show that public health is more than infectious diseases and health guidelines. Throughout the series, we'll get to know some of the people behind public health. In each episode, we invite a public health professional to share their career journey and experiences. Stay tuned to the end of each episode, as we also include a segment on some of the best places in Kingston to promote a greater sense of community and we play a song recommended by our guest. My name is Tiffany Harianto, and I'm a Master of Public Health candidate at Queen's University. I graduated from the Bachelor of Health Sciences Honors Program at McMaster University, where my honors project included making research on music and mental resilience more accessible to the public. As someone with a musical background, it's important to me to raise awareness on how we can apply our interests and passions to promote health for everyone. I'm also the program intern of the Beyond Words program at Union Gallery, which provides a safe space for students and members of the Cataraqui Kingston community to use art and conversation to promote wellness. I'm excited to co-host the podcast in Apple a Day. Through this podcast, I hope listeners will gain a deeper understanding and appreciation of public health. And I am Peyton Bailey. Like Tiffany, I am a student of Queen's University's Master of Public Health program. I have an academic background in physiology and microbiology, while personal interests include infection prevention, youth engagement in public policy, and the use of mass media to facilitate health education. I am delighted to work alongside Tiffany on this podcast and to learn more about the diverse areas of study and implications under the realm of public health science. I consider this podcast an opportunity for listeners of all backgrounds to gain a new perspective of health and how it intersects with various aspects of our society. This is Episode 3, A Public Health Professional's Journey. This week, we will discover what inspires someone to pursue a career in public health sciences, Joining us today to provide insight into this question is Dr. Duncan Hunter, a professor in the Department of Public Health Sciences at Queen's University. After receiving his PhD in health services research from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine in the UK, Duncan has worked as a public health epidemiologist in Ontario and Newfoundland. His previous work includes serving as director of the Health Information Partnership in the Eastern Ontario region, and collaborating with the Public Health Agency of Canada on the Chief Public Health Officer's report on the state of public health in Canada. He is currently the instructor for the undergraduate-level course Principles of Epidemiology and the graduate-level course Public Health System in Canada. We're thrilled to have the opportunity to speak with him today and learn more about his journey as a public health professional. So, Duncan, could you tell us about the person who inspired you to go into public health? So yes, I can. And really, it wasn't public health so much then as epidemiology. And this was when I was at the University of Waterloo doing undergraduate health studies. Third year course, never had heard about epidemiology before. Took that course and I just found it super interesting. And uh, as a result of that, I went on and did a master's in epidemiology. I liked the um, the puzzle of it. It's like, okay, we have a trend in death rates over time, or we have more people are getting a disease here compared to there. Why is that? And the idea of that question being potentially answerable or being a problem to solve, um, it just it made me interested. 
just like that. Did you find there were initially some specific areas of epidemiology, like whether that's geographically or in terms of topic that really gauged your interest? Right. Good question. So uh, then, no. Now, all these years later, I know that I'm more interested in descriptive epidemiology than um, analytic uh, epidemiology. So I, I really like the idea of prevalence rates and mortality rates and population data. Why are some areas sicker than others? Why are some groups of people more likely to get certain kinds of diseases? To me, these are interesting and important questions. I certainly agree. What was your first epidemiology-related project where you got to apply what you learned? <laughs> Good question. So I don't even know now if I'm applying of what I've learned as, as well as I could, but um, probably it was my master's thesis, I'm thinking. You know, it's, uh, it's difficult, I think, as a, as a researcher to know how and when your stuff's going to be applied. And so I even, even now I know that there's things I've published that may still be sitting in a journal somewhere unread, sadly. I, you know, when, when you start off with an undergrad degree, your results aren't being applied immediately. Um, I was still learning at that stage. Arguably, my MSc, I was still learning. Maybe when I started uh, my first job, maybe that's when I started to apply um, some of the findings from epidemiological study. I agree that we can often feel like we're always still learning. Yeah. And it's really interesting to see where life takes us in that mm -hmm. way as well. I think there's a good lesson in there as well about, you, you mentioned that some of your initial work, maybe mm -hmm. doing your master's yep. thesis, wasn't yeah. hasn't been cited or hasn't been used. And I think that's a lesson for a lot of young students that just because you're initially not getting a lot of um, feedback from the academic community, doesn't necessarily mean that years down the road that might not become relevant information or yes, it's, I, it's all part of a journey as well. Yes, I think I agree, Peyton. What I, what I, what I can tell you is um, um, I got a job working as an epidemiologist before I finished my master's. Um, and that job was working in the, um, uh, in the Niagara region of Ontario where they had really high cancer rates. And so my job was then to explain why that region might have had higher cancer rates uh, than other parts of Ontario. And um, again, you, we can have an argument about how applied the, the findings were, but in fact, we found out that there weren't higher rates of cancer in the Niagara region, despite a common perception that there was, except for one cancer for which smoking, higher smoking preference rates explained the, the increase. So the extent to which that alleviated the population's uh, concerns, I'm not sure. But there was no evidence that the cancer rates then were higher because of pollution, which is what people thought and what the papers were publishing. That's a surprising finding. I know. And I think it's interesting, too, when you mentioned that you only first started applying what you learned in your yeah. first job. Yeah. Could you share more about the kinds of skills that you got to apply only when you started working? It's interesting. So as a student, as a master's level student, you're often... Um, you're often involved in work that's important to your supervisor rather than to, um, to what you might be interested in. Um, and when I, was, um, when I got my first job, I think I was one of three epidemiologists in Ontario that had uh, work in public health units, like the first in the province. And, um, and you, got, you didn't get to choose what you worked on. The medical officer of health, um, based on input from the local um, Board of Health would say, listen, we need to do a study about this. 
there was no choice, and often there was no time to spend a year on a study. So again, it's been a long time since I've thought about this, but there was a there was some idea about an ambulance service, and they wanted me to look at response times from different parts of the region, and uh, nobody had ever actually measured it before. Like super simple descriptive statistics that provided, I can't remember now, evidence that there should be a new ambulance post or that there shouldn't, and, and I can't remember, but it's there somewhere in my piles of paper. I think one of the aspects yeah. I find most engaging about epidemiology yeah. is that often it's it's having results of there is no difference or there, there is no nothing really going on here, as you mentioned with the cancer rates in Niagara. And I think that's also a really good lesson for a lot of young scientists, especially those in undergrad, where it's really hammered home that you want to find significant results yeah. in every research project you do. Whereas in epidemiology, it's oftentimes you might not find any significance. Often it's just a uh, not having enough data on a particular topic. Yeah, absolutely. Really... Although to be fair, in this case, we there, there was enough data. There was lots of good data that showed actually, no, there wasn't, that there wasn't a, a real reason for concern. Um, I also remember again from that um, from that time, uh, there was an environmental activist who thought that um, that the location where her family lived, uh, downwind of a pulp and paper mill, was responsible for her child's asthma. And again, so I was asked to look at it by my medical officer of health. Looked at the research, did a data analysis of um, asthma rates, and. Um, Again, no no increased rates of asthma downwind of that plant. Number one risk factor then, I don't know, I'm assuming it still is, is whether or not somebody smokes at home. And in fact, this environmental activist was a smoker. So like, what caused that kid's asthma? Well, it still could have been genetic, but it also could have been the smoking. But those are the kinds of interesting things. I mean, that's what's great about working as a public health unit epidemiologist. You don't know what you're going to be working on. And uh, you also don't know how much time you have to work on it sometimes. Probably the world's a bit different now. There's probably more data that's already available to analyze these things. But back then, you had to call people and ask them and use the data that you could. There are certainly a lot of factors that come into play mm -hmm. when determining these kinds of epidemiological associations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And many of our listeners are MSc students as well. Right. What advice could you give to these students whenever they feel stuck on their research or they're having some challenges? Okay, that's a great question, Tiffany. So the advice I normally give to students is never take advice from old professors. <laughs> but in terms of um, in terms of this is advice for current master's students, could be epidemiology or could be public health, is... Um, complete your degree, and then take advantage of opportunities that are out there. You don't need to be fixed on one thing or another thing. There's so many interesting jobs out there that, that await you, and uh, try and embrace them. not sure if that's the advice you were wanting to hear, but that's the advice I'd give you. I think it might be different from what a lot of us might expect, mm -hmm. but I think it's very important advice mm -hmm. as well. And I remember in class you mentioned a story about how you seized opportunity through a conversation with a stranger. Uh, well, yes. So as it turns out, and I didn't know this when I was younger. When I'm you might be surprised to know I was quite shy when I was uh, when I was a younger university student. But now I'm actually much more comfortable talking to strangers. And uh, I know it's difficult for um, nowadays because people pop their earbuds in. I do myself. But 
you need to figure out how to make opportunities for yourself. And the way to do that is to talk to people. And um, this one individual that I might have mentioned in class, to be fair, it was at a conference. It wasn't on a plane or a bus. Um, and I just started talking to this guy, and uh, that led to an interesting job for me. And uh, you know, what's the worst that can happen if you talk to somebody? They can just say, I don't want to talk to you, or they can tell you to shut up, or they can put their earbuds in. But there are other ways to get positions rather than just applying for them all the time. Now, I can tell you what this job was, that, that if you're interested. Yeah, let's get some context there. Yeah, thanks. So this was, a, this was a conference I went to um, at the University of Ottawa, put on by uh, Bob Spazoff, who was a highly respected um, professor of epidemiology. So that sadly uh, died last year, I think, or two years ago. Um, but he used to run these epic courses, epic, uh, environmental... I can't remember what the acronym was, but we used to have these ties that I still have that he used to give out that had uh, the the Broad Street pump on them. And uh, one-day conference, two-day conference. Um, and there was a chap from England there, English chap that I sat beside and we were chit-chatting away. And uh, he worked in northern Newfoundland uh, for a mission, the Grenfell Mission, as it was known then. And uh, he asked me what I did and blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, we've been looking for somebody just like you. Would you be interested in going to work in Labrador or northern Newfoundland? And it was like, yes, I would. And I hadn't finished my thesis at this point. Um, and so um, anyway, to cut a long story short, I, um, I ended up working in uh, northern Newfoundland based in St. Anthony, which is at the very tip of the northern peninsula. And my first job was to write a health status report of Labrador and the northern peninsula and to help clinicians do their research. Fantastic job great opportunity. It's amazing that you found that opportunity by taking the time to speak with others as well. Why wouldn't you? Like, you know, you should talk to people. I would advise people to chit chat to people. You never know what's going to happen. It was actually how we got this podcast started too, right. by a conversation with the radio manager. So if we can go back and just get a bit of a rough timeline sure. for your career um, you worked a bit in Niagara and in other regions as well. Right. You did your master's thesis. And was it then that you went off to Newfoundland? So good question. So it's, so essentially, yes. So what happened was I was working five days a week on my thesis. Is that right? Three days a week at the health unit in Niagara. Four days a week in Toronto. I was living out of, a, you know, essentially my vehicle at the time and uh, backpack with my all of my thesis stuff. And uh, I actually got offered the job in Newfoundland before I finished my thesis. Um, but I did I finished my thesis, I defended it, handed in my notice at the uh, health unit, and flew off to, um, to uh, Newfoundland. And so I worked there for about four or five years. Um, I also taught in the Memorial University in Newfoundland. I used to fly down and uh, teach epidemiology, in fact. Um, and then after the four years, I thought, mm, time to do a PhD. That certainly sounds busy. Yeah. You mentioned earlier a bit about what you did at Newfoundland. Could you elaborate on that a bit more? Uh, yes. Uh, so um, so this funding came from a, a mission. It's called the International Grenfell Association. And they wanted somebody to do health research. And, uh, and thankfully, the perspective they took was kind of public health research. So as I say, I wrote the first health status report of Labrador uh, and northern Newfoundland. 
and now I also is acting as a research uh, resource to, um, for example, clinical residents, family medicine residents who are de- doing research projects. I set up a little ethics review board for the for the um, for the Grenfell. Then it was called Grenfell Regional Health Services. Um, I wrote bits and pieces. As I say, I flew down to St. John's quite a bit and was involved in um, in teaching at the um, at the medical school there. And have you maintained a lot of the contacts you made in in Newfoundland? Good question. So I did about 10 years ago. I went back to Memorial University and I gave a presentation on what happened to my um, health status report, like whatever it was, I can't remember now, 15 years later, 20 years later, and did a compare and contrast. Um, Even now, I will take any opportunity to go back to Newfoundland if invited. Um, I stay in touch with my St. Anthony friends via Facebook. That's really important. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like Newfoundland has a lot of meaningful connections for you. What was it about Queen's University in particular that stood out to you? So good question. So in fact, uh, my first job in Kingston wasn't at Queen's. Um, It was working for the Ontario government, Ministry of Health. And it was setting up what was called the health. There was a health intelligence units program and I was director of the Eastern one. Now, I had a connection with, like, a cross-appointment or an adjunct appointment, um, but it was a government job. Um, and Kingston's a great city. You can live rurally, um, but it still has all the amenities of a city, and it's not that far from big cities. So it was a combination of those things that attracted me at Kingston. Let's face it, I needed a job as well. Um, could I have stayed in Europe? Because I, I was in Spain at the time. Um, I kind of miss my family a bit, so I wanted to be a bit closer to my to my parents and sister and brother. Oh, if I may ask, what brought you to Spain? Um, so I did a, I did a research fellowship at the Autonomous University of Madrid after I finished my PhD. So um, so you can so it's equivalent of a postdoctoral fellowship, uh, and you can imagine uh, the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine is it's, it's a global school of public health full of people from all over the world. And I just fell in with a group of um, Latinas, Latinos, uh, Spanish people, and one thing led to another. And so I had this position in in Spain for probably a year in total, but I only was living in Madrid for about two months. But I was back and forth quite a bit. What was it about traveling that most stood out to you? So in particular, what did you learn about being able to work in all these different places? Oh, it's good. It's good, really. So it kind of, we'll circle back to something that we talked about earlier. It's about creating opportunities. And again, those opportunities to go to, um, to, to, go to Spain is definitely about establishing relationships. I guess, um, I guess it's part of my personality. I'm interested in learning new things, interested in experiencing new, new opportunities. Um, there's a there's a point in your life where you can do these things. Well, why wouldn't you? So I, I'm not sure if that's an adequate answer, but it's probably the probably the right one. I think creating opportunities is a really important theme mm-hmm. in this conversation yeah. too. Mm-hmm. So, what really was your experience like at the London School of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene? Yeah, so that's a very good question because I am that person that only remembers the good things and forgets and forgets the bad things. And uh, without a doubt, my first year was um, was difficult, if only because um, I I didn't have very much money. Um, I was uh, I had to pay international fees. I was using up all my savings from having worked in Newfoundland, um, and I realized after the first year I probably couldn't finish my PhD. I couldn't afford to do it. 
So that's the stressful part, which I forget about. The fantastic part was that my um, supervisor um, worked out that, because um, I, was, I was born in the UK, so I had the right of abode, as it's called. He worked out that I could be hired as a research um, associate, and there was a loophole that would allow me to do a PhD part-time. So he hired me to do a PhD research-style project, but the funding happened because I was a staff person, so I didn't. So I got paid to do the PhD, and even now, I um, I just thank my lucky stars for that man. Sounds uh, like a great supervisor. Yeah, Nick Black, his name is. Uh, he uh, he was knighted for services to public health and policy. So in the UK, we would now call him Sir Nick. That's a huge honor, and it's amazing that it went to someone involved in public health too. I know, I know, it's great. Well, the the, the uh, looking back on it now, I had to change my topic as a result of it, um, and I had to have another supervisor who I so Nick still stayed on my supervisory team, but I also had another awesome supervisor. Um, his name's Martin McKee, who I think is now head of the British Medical Association, and a really uh, highly recognized um, uh, European public health specialist. So I really had the best of training, I think, from the school, and I made some lifelong friends as well. That's wonderful to hear. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us more about your PhD thesis? Yes, of course. So um, so basically, my PhD was trying to estimate the need for prostatectomy in a given population. So this is to do with rational planning of health services, um, and it involved uh, components of figuring out what the prevalence of urinary symptoms were in the population, in males, talking to surgeons to find out what the appropriate indications for treatment were, using a consensus method, a qualitative method, and then using that information to figure out whether how many men with appropriate indications would choose to have the surgery, and then use that information to say we should be providing this much of this service in a specified population area which we could then, in theory, allow for rational planning and budgeting. That's the premise behind it. All of those pieces were published. Whether or not the information was used in planning by the um, regional health authorities, I'm not so sure, because I came back to Canada at that point, after I finished. Actually, I went to Spain, then I came back. A core theme of this discussion thus far that I've noticed is how you've really sought opportunity and you've made opportunities. And I wonder, did you ever have any second thoughts about going off to these different places? And I'm just imagining myself in those positions and how big of life change it must have been to travel to places like Spain, the UK and Newfoundland even. Well, no. So I, so I, I maybe you said this in class, success is just the redefinition of failure. So I don't really look back very much. I've been absolutely lucky to have had the opportunities I've had. I've never really re- regretted any of those kind of life changes. I've been super lucky and uh, super super lucky really to have had the career that I've had. Do you have any advice for maybe like students in master's programs or whatever, people in their early 20s, let's say, on how to make those opportunities possible? Right. A lot of people who are more introverted may be hesitant to seeking out travel to to different places what's so hard to offer advice to people like my advice i think i said this in class is ignore my advice but i um i mean in general terms you don't have to have a phd to find an interesting stimulating job for one thing there's loads of interesting jobs out there 
uh, for master's students. So that's one piece that I would advise. The other thing is, what's the hurry? You don't really need to step right out of your master's into into a into a lifetime job um, if you don't have to. I mean, I understand that there's um, pressure to pay off debts, parental pressure maybe to find work. But even if you get a great job, you don't have to keep it. You know, lots of our MPH students have started off by doing uh, parental leave jobs, for example, for six months, and that's allowed them to move forward. No job needs to be for life. And for your generation, it's probably even more difficult to find those jobs. But I, um, yeah, it's really hard to offer advice. It's really easy for me to look back and make a, a narrative of what's happened to me and say, you do this, do that, do this. But you can't tell those narratives before they've happened. So um, I, I don't know. Just take advantages of opportunities. If it hasn't worked out, don't be shy about changing. I think that's probably the, the advice I'd give. I think that's really good advice, too, mm. with a lot of emphasis on the journey. Mm. And you yourself mentioned earlier in our conversation that you left a government job to work at Queen's University. Yeah. Could you tell us more about that transition? So quite interesting. So because I had that job, I also had an adjunct appointment in, um, in, um, at Queen's. I mean, the thing is, I've spent a lot of time around universities in my life, and I'm, it's quite a comfortable environment for me. Um, government jobs then and probably still are quite time regimented. So you're expected to show up at a certain time and expected to leave at a certain time. And I'm more of a person that likes to be task-oriented. So it's like I'm going to finish something, and when I'm finished it, I'm going to leave if I have to. And so I remember really feeling frustrated that I had half an hour, I'd finished what I'd set out to do that day, but would have to stay for the other half hour because at that time, kind of regimented. But, you know, there's no teaching in government, really, and I, I quite enjoy sharing my knowledge with students. I quite enjoy, as you guys know, interacting with, with students. Um, and I, I never regret my decision to move from that role to, to the university. Also, that was a five-year funded project. And so um, it wasn't forever. Not that that worried me. But, you know, I never looked back on that decision. We're really glad to have you at Queen's as well. Oh, thank you. I definitely. enjoyed your class, for sure. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Could you tell us more about what you find in teaching and in knowledge sharing, especially at a university? You know, I do think it's a privilege to be in a position to share what I know with people. I don't think that's uh, something that I would, um, um, that I think lightly. Like, I think it's super important and special. Um, one of the things that I, uh, I my personality is I, I like to learn things. And so in order to teach things, you're always having to learn things and things are always changing. So, so the aspects of my teaching role is it's forcing me to learn things. And it's forcing me to um, to share that knowledge. But I also like the I like hanging out with students. I actually like the being in a classroom and seeing people understand things and get things. I mean, you, you probably saw how that that worked in our class. I notice actually in our class last semester, it's very different from a typical lecture based format yeah. that many students might be more familiar with. Right. What inspired the format of this class? Well, it's interesting. So uh, nobody teaches you how to be a professor in terms of teaching. And the, the, the stand, I think the standard model, probably even I did this at the beginning of my career, is you teach the way you were taught. 
And so that kind of perpetuates itself. Um, but I, I also, uh, in the early stages of being a, a, um, a teacher, an instructor, we'll say, rather than being a professor, same thing, is I felt I had to know everything. And actually, it's quite impossible to know everything. And so I guess over time and practice, I, um, I started to get more comfortable being able to say, I, this is what I know, this is what I don't know. But the real stimulus for the way I teach now was, um, was a, a, a two-day course offered by the Center for Teaching and Learning here at Queen's University, which was about curriculum development, the flipped classroom, active learning. And it's just like, oh my goodness, this is who I, this is who I am. I should have been teaching like this all the time. And, um, and so it's a combination of things. I guess there's another factor to describing how I teach, and that's that I'm... Um, I actually don't think students are interested in learning unless they can get enthusiastic about a, about a topic. And I'm just not interested in shoveling information at people and asking them to memorize it for a final. Like, you guys have a web now. You guys need to be thinking and talking about issues rather than writing things down, I think, on a final. So just for the context of our audience, I, I suppose you could describe your teaching method as very discussion-based. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. What were some of the discussions that most stood out to you in each class? Well, the things that stand out for me most is the feedback I get at the end of the year. More, more with my undergrad uh, epidemiology class than my graduate class, because it's a different, slightly different group of students. But it's the positive feedback I get. Like, I've never learned like this before. Best course I took at Queen's, which I sometimes get from my undergrad courses. The, the number one thing that stands out for me, though, thinking back to your question, is that people show up. <laughs> like, they actually want to come to class. I'm going to swing back to yeah. something you, you mentioned um, a few questions ago. And it was how you describe your teaching as in involving a lot of learning yourself. And so I'm curious, what are some of the topics you're most interested in that are maybe emerging in public health and epidemiology? Um, so um, I guess the, the two or three things that I'm super interested in learning more about now, um, which um, are kind of also public health priorities, I feel I should know more about them. And, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer your question as if also like what are the most important issues in public health? And one of them is, I think we need a vaccine that's going to be a, like a fast responder. We, what we need is a rapid response vaccine, which is, a, which is, I don't know, some kind of base that as soon as a new virus pops up or a new variant, massive amounts of the, virus can, of the vaccine can be manufactured immediately. These kind of pandemics like COVID, they're not going away. They're, and so, so I don't know enough about that, but I feel I should know more. I still think that the important health issue that we're facing is climate change. And again, it's not really what I know a lot about, but feel that I should know more about what the impacts on human health are and then what the strategies are to try and prevent those. And, uh, and, and I guess the third thing that I really want to know more about, actually, maybe it's the thing I'm most interested in, come to think of it, is how on earth do we um, sort our way through all of the information that's out there? There's an overwhelming amount of information, both scientific, wrong, commentary, opinion, and it's almost impossible to weed out what's the good stuff and what the bad stuff is, or what the useful stuff and what the not so useful is. So I kind of want to know more about that. 
These are certainly fascinating topics to discuss as well. You mentioned that because you're interested in such a broad array of different things, that public health stands out to you. What does public health mean to you exactly then? One of the things I've noticed is it means a lot of different things to different people. And even in the course that I taught you, I gave you what my views are on what public health is. So for some people, it's all about inequity. For some other people, it's what things determine our health. For me, it's really about what actions, like what policies, programs, or services can we use that will effectively make population health better. I think that's what interests me, recognizing that uh, we don't have all the answers about how to improve uh, population health. And, in fact, should we even be spending that expertise in Canada and ignoring other parts of the world which are unhealthy, relatively speaking? I think the focus on action is very important as well, Mm. that it's more than theory, but Mm. also applied theory as well. And that's why I really enjoyed your class and the kinds of projects that we got to do. What would you recommend our listeners to do? So what actions can we as citizens take to improve on public health? Well, it's interesting because individuals tend to be interested in their own individual health. And, um, And big corporations, we talked a little bit about this when we were talking about the commercial determinants of health, are very good at framing health as an individual responsibility rather than as a as a a, a bigger national societal um, uh, entity so for example the plastics industry were the ones that invented the term litter bug so it's not the industry that's making plastic that's the cause of plastic in our oceans it's the individual that's throwing the stuff out so one thing individuals could do is don't use plastic if you do use plastic, recycle it, but realize that it's probably not being recycled. Um, the same with um, with alcohol use, for example. It's often framed as an individual problem rather than the alcohol companies which are promoting their product. Gambling's another one. I mean, individuals probably shouldn't gamble. It, it, it's always interested me the, the, um, the difference between individual health and public population health. Um, and, uh, and, and how individuals don't really have a lot that they can do to increase the broader public health unless they get into it, unless they're activists, um, unless they, um, yeah, they want to be a squeaky wheel in the side of government or, in, or authority, for want of a better word. Yeah, big question. The connection between individual and public health is something that fascinates me as well. Mm-hmm. And you spoke a lot about commercial determinants of health, yeah. such as gambling and alcohol. Yeah. How can our listeners be more aware of these commercial determinants of health to improve their own health? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's uh, it's a fairly new it's a fairly new determinant of health. In fact, the the first good textbook I just I think just came out in the last six months. Again, it's an area that uh, I don't know a lot about, and I'm interested in learning more about. Um, you, we talked about this in class. Like, if you look at the websites of um, tobacco companies, you'd feel like they are actually promoting health because of the various greenwashing statements that they make on their on their website. Um, I mean, I guess the I guess one thing is just to look out for what big corporations are doing. You know, to look out for this idea that um, 
climate change might not be real, for example, which is a strategy that um, the oil and gas companies use to, to say, to sort of cast, cast cloud on, on what the science is saying. Um, and yet the climatologists are saying climate change is real. The um, meteorologists are saying weather patterns are changing. But even now, there's this idea that there is some scientific doubt that it's real. Um, the same with alcohol consumption. My understanding is that um, all of the evidence is saying, yes, excessive alcohol consumption is detrimental to human health, specifically now in terms of cancer. But alcohol companies are saying, no, no, science says it's a really positive thing. And so I think one thing individuals can do is to try and look out for how big corporations try to market things and how they try and blame individuals rather than blame themselves. It's, uh, I like that you bring up the alcohol thing. I saw an article today actually um, about how alcohol causes cancer. Yeah. It's, it's pretty well established, I think, at this point. It's a, it's a big determinant of cancer risk. And I saw a lot of feedback from this article and people are very resistant to that idea. Yeah, they don't want... They don't want warnings uh, or warning labels on packages. Um, it, it's funny how people can be so resistant to some of these public health measures. And um, I'm not sure if this is directly under your um, your purview of expertise, but how do you recommend or what ideas do you have for communicating some of these public health measures to a, a very resistant public? Well, I, I, I mean, the first thing is to be aware. And then once you can be aware, you can start talking about it to people and letting people know. So, so again, I don't, I don't know what's happening um, so much in, um, in Canada. But I do know in the UK, for example, is there are these um, um, organizations, for example, there's one called Alcohol Concern, which I think is based in Ireland. They help with alcohol um, teaching educational packages for schools. But they're funded by the alcohol industry. And so I think the first thing is to look out for these kind of seemingly legitimate think tanks or um, organizations, figure out where the funding is coming from. Um, because um, these corporations, which, by the way, have a lot more money than um, than public bodies do, are very sophisticated at convincing the population um, that A, there may be some doubt about the science, or B, there's individuals' faults, uh, not you know, not the company's faults or the corporation's fault. I mean, the first step is to to see it and to understand it. Funding is certainly an issue when it comes to conflicts of interest. Yeah. And we have that addressed in a way in scientific papers yeah. where researchers need to disclose that kind of information. Yeah. What advice would you have, though, for public health officials, since many of our listeners will be working in the field of public health <laughs> over the coming years? Well, a lot of what public health does in a in a in a local health unit is um, is mandated, if that's the right word, by by law, and 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 those mandates are are meant to be evidence based and are evidence based for the most part, and uh, and so that so um, so that means that they should be working, like like publicly funded um, services should be effective. Otherwise, we shouldn't be funding them. The other side of that coin, though, is there are a lot of people out there that want some maybe ineffective or seemingly good ideas provided um, because it's their tax money. And you, you can't really argue with that either. But there, there are things that 
societies want and that may not be the best for society, but I, you can't argue with that either. There's no right answer to these things. Different people have different views. Um, the question is how to, how to make your way through that in, a, in some kind of coherent way, I think. So this, this might interest you guys. I don't know if I talked about this in class particularly, but one of the outcomes of SARS, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, um, there was a fantastic report written by um, David Naylor, who I think was then um, probably the, I think he's a president, not a principal of the University of Toronto. Um, he, um, he wrote a really good report basically saying we need to renew public health in Canada. And, and he suggested a number of things one of which was that Canada needed a public health agency of Canada, independent from government, um, or it, and that it was required to report to Parliament every year. Um, and that also that the public health workforce in Canada needed to be significantly um, improved. And as a result of that support, there was like, I don't know what, what it is now, 17 new MPH programs across the country, one of which is the one at Queen's which I'm going to say started in 2009, maybe had its first intake, not sure exactly. But the Public Health Agency of Canada um, was required by law to write a public health report every, uh, every year. And so I worked on the first two. Some of my time was still here at Queen's teaching. And the other part of my time was, I think, three days a week was working in Ottawa. And it was advising them on what to report on, how to, you know what information was needed. And these reports were called the State of Public Health in Canada. It's super interesting to see how big government works. Um, even now, I'll say this based on my time, both in regional, provincial, and federal governments, there's a lot of smart, hardworking people that work in government. Don't ever let anybody say that they're, that they're otherwise. And, uh, and it was intellectually challenging, and, um, and so, so I did that for three years. You mentioned working as a public health professional during SARS as well, and certainly COVID-19 isn't the first pandemic yeah. that you experienced as a yeah. public health professional. Correct. Yeah. Could you tell us about your role in public health and public health in general during each pandemic? That so you that's interesting. So um, I'm, I'm trying to remember what, what I was doing during SARS. I, I do remember that, um, that the provincial, this was before Public Health Ontario had been established, and I think the public health branch of the Ministry of Health was on the back foot. I don't think they were ready for SARS. Um, and I do remember getting an invite to go and enter data, I think, um, because they needed they just needed bodies to, to collect information. But I know I didn't go, and I think it's probably because I had teaching commitments. I think I was probably at Queen's, and, I, and what they were doing is they wanted people to go to Toronto and stay there, you know, to be sequestered in some hotel and basically spend all of the time entering data and I just couldn't do that. COVID was a little bit different um, partly because I was head of department at the time and partly because our department didn't really have expertise in, in infectious disease epidemiology at the time. So we didn't as a department have a big contribution to make to COVID. My number one role wasn't really as a public health professional, it was as a department head and it was about trying to stick handle our teaching from in-person to remote teaching. And that wasn't as straightforward as, um, as you might think. What stood out to you most about being the interim head for the department? Well, I'm pretty proud of um, that teaching room, 102. 
that was a definitely uh, definitely an opportunistic uh, grab for our department that I that I managed to do when I was there. Um, we we hired a couple of people when I was head. So Zhang was one of the hires that I managed, and uh, I think he's been a massive asset to our department. Uh, Wei too, also jointly with the um, clinical trials people, um, he was one of the ones that I helped uh, hire as department head. Uh, probably the other thing I did was because I was um, interacting at a higher level of the university, I was really in the position to s s draw attention to our department more so. So I did have one more question sure. related to public health and Absolutely. your role in it as well. So I think that's something that we've learned from each pandemic that we've experienced so far this century mm. is the importance of emergency preparedness. Yeah, I, do, I agree. Could you speak more about that and what we as individuals can do? Well, like, again, I don't know what individuals can do. I mean, emergency preparedness is something, again, which is legislated, mandated. Our local health unit has an emergency response plan, which is negotiated with various other players like the police force, the fire department. The mayor, I think, maybe chairs the committee. Can't remember. Um, we have good connections with the military if, if there's a if a bomb goes off or a volcano, you know, if there's an earthquake in Kingston, it's not a lot that individuals individuals can be prepared for. I mean, I I do have fundamental optimism about what humans do in disasters and how they help each other. Um, somewhere I read advice that individuals should have little emergency kits ready if if the power goes off. So maybe that's something. The thing about public health is it's not really about individual action. It's really about corporate, or uh, I'm using the word corporate, uh, societal action. And so w really what we want is we want to have more, public, more resources to public health, more appreciation of, of that it's smart to prevent things from happening in the first place. Um, there are things that individuals can do to make themselves healthier, but that's not what you're asking me about. You're asking me about what we can do to make the society better probably the best way is to end up somewhere in a public health job hopefully our listeners take that to heart so there's something else that just occurred to me and something i wanted to say i'm anticipating a question that i'm sure you're going to ask is like what what things am i um in my career today kind of proud of and uh and i've thought about this and i'm and i'm going to um borrow a, a an idea that i got from one of my colleagues who had a similar role at uh, University of Toronto, Ian Johnson, who um, uh, people who worked, worked in public health know well. He said that when he retired, his output and the things he was satisfied with was not research papers. It was his students. And in fact, probably the thing I'm going to be proudest of and probably the biggest place that I've made an impact is by enabling students to go into the workforce, the public health workforce, to make the kind of differences Tiffany, that I think you're, you're after. And uh, that for me is very satisfying. I agree. Thank you for your answer. <laughs> I, I guess you've touched on this a little bit, but maybe I'll explicitly ask, and uh, what has inspired you most about the people you work with? I do get inspired when I hear different viewpoints about things or things I might not have thought about. Um, I get inspired having conversations about things, really. Um, you know, there's so much um, pressure to answer emails and to finish papers that need to be submitted or to read theses or to get PowerPoints ready. I actually don't think we, the Royal We, have conversations enough 
which are kind of free-flowing connectedness of connecting ideas and coming up with new ideas. Um, so I like that when that happens. Probably doesn't happen enough. Um, the, one, the thing that really inspires me the most, though, is when my students, um, of which I would consider you, end up getting the jobs that they want. And it turns out that their MPHs or MSCs were a, a good idea for them. That's motivating to hear. <laughs> we learned in class quite often that commercial determinants of health are really important to consider. And fast food is a huge one of them. Yeah. To help address that, cooking is a huge and a really important alternative. So what simple, healthy meal would you recommend for our listeners to try cooking? Well, so it's a good, it's a good question. So, and, and also, it's a more complicated question than you might think. Because you could argue that a, that a healthy meal might not be simple. You know, in fact, the healthiest meal might be the one that takes three hours to prepare and four hours to eat and actually might be unhealthy, according to nutritionists, but actually might be super socially and mentally health, healthy with the sharing of the food and the conversation that goes with it. But that's a little bit of a clever answer. So um, uh, as you, maybe, you know, I really like to cook. Um, I have a handful of really fast, simple meals that I cook, whether they're healthy or not, it's open to debate. But the one thing I like to, the one thing I would do if I had nothing ready to go, assuming that uh, listeners have a rice cooker, is cook rice in your rice steamer 15 minutes before, put a piece of frozen fish. Well, no, while the rice has started, defrost the fillet of fish or whatever it is in some water, whack it on top of the rice steamer 15 minutes before you're ready to eat. Bit of sesame seed oil bit of something spicy, bit of mirin. It's it's actually 30 seconds worth of prep time. Probably rice and salmon or salmon and fish is probably healthy. That sounds delicious. <laughs> salmon is also my favorite fish too. <laughs> Very good. You have to be careful with that sesame oil though. That's I know. Uh, potent stuff. You know, I um, I also I, I also really like bread and cheese as a really fast, simple meal. I make bread two or three times a week and I find that super satisfying. Food really is about companionship, and it's, um, you know, it's better to eat with somebody than eat by yourself. I certainly agree. Yep. So our podcast, Annapolis a Day, aims to be community-oriented. Right. And part of this involves encouraging our listeners to explore Kingston and engage with the community. What would be your favorite place downtown or near campus that our listeners can visit? Okay, so my so I've anticipated this quest question as well. My three favorite places, really, in this within the city of Kingston, uh, on campus, other than my office, obviously, is the Grad Club. I really like the social connectedness of that uh, that place. I think that uh, Breakwater Park, um, uh, the waterfront here in front of Queens, is a fabulous place. I go there almost every day for. Um, 10 or 15 minute power walk and the KP trail for listeners that haven't been there. It's an amazing place to ride a bike on or, or uh, go walking on. And so those would be the three places I would say. Um, I don't tend to go downtown very much, um, but listeners can find what they want downtown. I agree that the waterfront is a really special place mm -hmm. and blue space is often underrated in cities yeah. as well. Yeah. So in the spirit of CFRC, our podcast sometimes plays a song at the end of an episode. I enjoyed the music you played before the start of our classes. So I'd just like to know, Duncan, uh, which song would you recommend for us to play at the end of this episode? Right. So there were so many different songs that I could have chosen. 
and I don't even know what category you're interested in, what genre, upbeat, downbeat. So what I've chosen is something that I've just um, just was given on vinyl for Christmas. Um, it's by a Scottish band called Pete and Diesel. That's Pete spelled P-E-A-T. Um, and uh, it's um, uh, you could describe it as kind of tongue-in-cheek punk folk. The uh, the song's called um, Island, and what I like about it um, is it's fun, and it's really about a sense of place. And uh, it's kind of got out of fashion now to ask people where they come from, but the lyrics in this song are completely about being proud of where you come from. So that's the song, Island by Pete and Diesel. Thank you for listening to an Apple a Day Public Health Inquiry podcast produced with the generous support of Queen's University's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. 101.9 FM CFRC is broadcast from Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabek and Haudenosaunee peoples. For any questions, comments, feedback, or even just dropping a friendly hello, you can reach out to appleaday.php at gmail.com. Join us next time for Episode 2, where we'll learn about what it means to work in public health and discuss surprising ways that current events around us affect our health. Tune Tune in next time at 101.9 FM CFRC.
Yeah. 